Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, I'm talking about the first four words in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, and unpacking why a theology of God is significant for our task of Christian witness in the world. The Apostles' Creed begins with the line, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This is important because our faith does not start with who we are, but with who God is. We could spend several episodes just unpacking this line. Indeed, when I teach my college-level Intro to Theology class, we spend four weeks on this line. Today, though, in this episode, I want to focus in specifically on the first four words, I believe in God. And we'll spend our time with this key question, how do we know who God is? Some people think that we have to discover or find God. Some people think that if we search and find a magical door, then we will encounter God. In this understanding, knowing who God is requires our work and our knowledge. For Christians, we believe that we can know God not because of our searching, but because God acted first. God revealed himself to us. A way to understand this self-revelation of God is a Latin phrase, Deus Dixit. Deus Dixit, God speaks. It is only because God speaks that we can know anything about him. It is only because he chose to reveal himself that we can know who he is. There are many examples of God speaking in the Bible. Let's consider just a few. Take, for example, Genesis 12one to 8, the calling of Abraham, or Exodus 3, 1 through 9, the calling of Moses, or 1 Samuel 3, 1 through 18, the calling of Samuel, or Luke 1, 26 to 38, when God announces to Mary that she will have a child and she is to name him Jesus, or Acts 9, 1 to 19, the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. What is interesting in all of these passages is who starts the conversation. It is always God. And the people to whom God speaks then respond in various ways. Have you noticed in the calling of Abraham, Abram doesn't actually speak. God speaks and then Abram goes forth. God speaks again and Abram builds an altar. When God speaks to Moses, Moses falls to the ground. Poor little Samuel is so confused and thinks that the priest Eli is calling him because he had never heard the word of the Lord. Mary, upon hearing the proclamation by God's angel that she is with child, breaks into song, and that song has become one of the most important hymns in the Christian tradition called the Magnificat. And for Saul, it was just another day at the office, as it were. He was trying to catch those pesky Christians. It was just another work day for him. What we see in all of these examples is that these people were not seeking for God. Instead, as Michael Horton notes, they were interrupted from their daily routine. In other words, God broke through. This belief that God reveals himself is called the doctrine of revelation. 
Scripture has two main words to describe God's revelation. Galah and Apocalypsis. Galah is the Hebrew word in the Old Testament that means uncover. And Apocalypsis is the Greek word in the New Testament that means unveiling. Both terms carry with them the idea that God is hidden and we cannot know him. It is only after God reveals himself that we can know him. There is a tension here because we cannot fully know God. We call this tension mystery. Now, mystery is one of those words that has two different meanings. Usually, today, when people use the word mystery, they mean something to be solved. Murder, she wrote, is a mystery. Castle, starring Nathan Fillion, is a mystery. For 45 minutes, we wonder and puzzle and watch either Jessica Fletcher or Rick Castle be a detective. And in the last five minutes, the mystery is solved and all the pieces fit together. But that is not what theologians mean by mystery when we're talking about knowing or not knowing God. Instead, to say that God is a mystery means that he is incomprehensible. Even when we begin to know God, that knowing demonstrates how little we actually know. In some ways, knowing leads to less knowing. A good place to start to learn more about mystery as a theological term to describe the revelation of God is in Graham Cole's book, He Who Gives Life, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit, especially his second chapter, The Elusiveness of the Spirit. There, he surveys how Protestant, Catholic, and Orthodox theologians have understood the term mystery in relation to knowing God. What Cole does that is extremely helpful is he unpacks the implications for our belief and practice, namely that it should push us to a posture of humility. Here he points the reader to a beautiful quote from Anselm. I do not endeavor, O Lord, to penetrate thy sublimity, but in no way do I compare my understanding with that, but I long to understand in some degree thy truth, which my heart believes and loves. There are two words in theology that we use to describe how God relates to his creation in his act of self-revelation, transcendence and imminence. To say that God is transcendent means that God is above and different from creation. He is far. He does not need creation in order to be God. Examples of verses that speak of the transcendence of God include verses that refer to God as high and exalted. See, for example, Isaiah 6.1 or Ecclesiastes 5.2. To say that God is imminent means God is actively involved with his creation. He is near. Examples of verses that speak of the imminence of God include passages that refer to God as the sustainer of creation. We see this especially in the book of Job. We also see it in Acts 17, 27-28. Note here that spelling matters. Imminence often gets confused with another word, imminence. Imminence, or imminent, with an A, means near or close or involved. Imminent with an I means soon. I have students sometimes who will try to talk about how God is near and they will say he is imminent with an I 
And I will write on their paper a line from one of my favorite hymns, Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. What they've told me is that God is soon rather than God is near. Looking at both of these terms, transcendence and imminence, we do not have to choose one or the other. It is not that God is either transcendent, far, or imminent, near. Scripture and the Christian tradition have taught that God is both transcendent and imminent. We tend to get into trouble when we emphasize only one of these and exclude the other. If God is both transcendent and imminent, this means three things. First, it means that God is not a God who created the world and then left it alone without ever interacting with it. This idea that God created the world but is not involved in any way is called deism, and it was a popular idea in the 18th century. Second, if we say that God is both transcendent and imminent, this means that God does not need creation. Panentheism is the belief that God needs the universe in order to survive, or that if the universe dies, God will also die. Third, if God is both transcendent and imminent, this means that God is not creation. Pantheism is the belief that God is the universe. We cannot arrive at God. We cannot reveal God by using our reason, science, observation, or mystical intuition. We cannot build a tower of Babel to the heavens to reach God. No matter how hard we work, we cannot reveal God. Instead, it is God who breaks through and reaches down to us. And more than that, God does not break through randomly or by accident. Because of the Incarnation, God did not just break through, He dwelt among us. This means that our relationship with God is a grace. God in His grace broke through to speak to creation. The Father in His grace sent us His Son Jesus to be Emmanuel, God with us. The Father in His grace sends His Holy Spirit to meet us in the words and pages of Scripture. And it is not just that God breaks through, but He then invites us to respond to His grace by worshiping Him in song and prayer and testimony and lives lived to His glory. This understanding of God is quite radical, even for Christians. And this is because in our modern Western North American culture, the Judeo-Christian principles that were once prominent are now increasingly irrelevant. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith and his team surveyed American youth about what they believe about religion and God. Smith's team interviewed teenagers from various states, various ages, and even different religions. And what he found was surprising. All of the teenagers had a fairly consistent theology. Smith and his team summarized their findings about the beliefs of these teenagers into five main points. Smith calls this understanding of religion moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, no one calls themselves moralistic therapeutic deists, but Smith's appellation gives a name and a framework to the default theology of these young Americans. 
And so we can summarize this as a creed. What is the creed of moralistic therapeutic deism? There are five points. First, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Second, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Third, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. What's fascinating in Smith's research related to this is that these MTD statements weren't just found among Christians or secular people. These sentiments transcended religious traditions. In the 15 years since this initial study took place, the creed of MTD hasn't disappeared. Instead, it appears to have become more entrenched in our North American culture. Those teenagers in 2005 are now adults and are now having families of their own. There is a new generation that is being raised with this default theology of God. And interestingly, in many quarters of Protestant evangelical Christianity, this is the default theology of God as well. But is this the theology that we see in Scripture itself or in the lived tradition of the Christian church these last 2,000 years? This is why we need to think about the question, how do we know who God is? Our theology of God is not isolated from our other theological claims. What we say about who God is impacts what we say about who we are, what it means to be human, what we say about creation, salvation, and redemption. We've been talking about how God acted first. God revealed himself, and we cannot in any way reveal God. This idea of God speaking, God acting, God as the first initiator impacts our understanding of the gospel. New Testament scholar Dr. Wesley Hill once said this at a church conference. Our culture says, if you do this, then you will be loved. But the call of the gospel Hill notes, is not an if-then relationship. Instead, the call of the gospel is a because-therefore relationship. Hill is on to something here that is an important word for our culture that strives for results and clear steps to attain goals. So what does this because-therefore look like? I want to suggest three things. First, because God loves us, John 3.16, therefore we can heed the call of salvation, which is to take up our crosses, follow Jesus, and die, Matthew 16.24-25. Second, because the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead, Romans 8.11, therefore we can have new life, living in community, breaking bread, hearing the word, and submitting to one another in love, Acts 2.42-47. And third, because Christ has proclaimed this to be the year of the Lord, in which he has been anointed to preach the good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the captives, and the recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, Luke 4, 18-19, and Isaiah 61, therefore we can take up the call of discipleship, which is to be a witness for Christ, to proclaim the good news, to be salt and light, 
to go into all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19-20 These three, because therefores, are quite different from the five main points of MTD. The god of moralistic therapeutic deism is a passive butler who waits to be summoned. The god of the Bible, the triune god of the Christian faith, is a god who speaks, a god who breaks through, a god who tabernacles with his people. Deus Dixit, Sursum Corda.